Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with insight into the attitudes of corporate leaders and billionaires expressed in softball interviews at Davos towards the possibility of Trump being re-elected, with Jamie Dimon saying Trump is, quote, kind of right about NATO, immigration, the economy, and China, while opining that, quote, negative talk about MAGA is going to hurt Biden's electoral chances. Joining us to discuss how American industry and banking leaders at Davos are quite okay with Trump winning the presidency, is Michael Hiltzig, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and columnist at the Los Angeles Times. He received the Pulitzer Prize for articles exposing corruption in the entertainment industry. Currently, he writes a twice-weekly column covering business and economic issues relevant to life in California. His books include The New Deal and Modern History and Iron Empires, Rubber Barons, Railroads and the Making of Modern America. We'll discuss his latest article at the Los Angeles Times, Davos, where the rich and powerful go to show off their ignorance. Then we'll focus on the Baluchistan region of Pakistan and its border with Iran, which has seen missile and drone strikes first by Iran into Pakistan, then retaliation from Pakistan with strikes into Iran. Joining us is Dr. Daniel Markey, a senior advisor on South Asia at the United States Institute of Peace and a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies Foreign Policy Institute. From 2003 to 2007, Dr. Markey was a member of the United States State Department's policy planning staff, where his work focused on U.S. strategy in South Asia, especially Pakistan and India. His books include China's Western Horizon, Beijing and the New Geopolitics of Asia, and No Exit from Pakistan, America's Tortured Relationship with Islamabad. Then finally, we'll broaden the discussion to assess whether the exchange of missiles between Iran and Pakistan will contribute to the escalation of conflicts in the Middle East involving Iran's axis of resistance in Gaza, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Yemen. Joining us is Adam Weinstein, a research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. A former Marine officer deployed to Afghanistan, he previously worked as a senior law and policy analyst at the National Iranian American Council. And joining us now is Michael Hiltzig, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and columnist at the Los Angeles Times. He received the Pulitzer Prize for articles exposing corruption in the entertainment industry and currently writes a twice-weekly column covering business and economic issues relevant to life in California. His books include The New Deal, A Modern History, and Iron Empires, Rubber Barons, Railroads, and the Making of Modern America. And his latest article at the Los Angeles Times is Davos, where the rich and powerful go to show off their ignorance. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Hiltzik. Well, thanks for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's always been a sort of uh, disconnect uh, or even absurdity about Davos with all these corporate heads and billionaires sitting in hot tubs drinking Dom Perignon, wringing their hands about the fate of the world. But nevertheless, world leaders and do go there to hold court. I mean, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, was also addressing these people. So what's the purpose of this conclave of elites in the Swiss Alps? I think it's probably the same impulse uh, that brings them to Davos, that brings them to Jackson Hole um, also uh, during the winter. They love to 
hobnob with each other. They love to tell each other how smart they are, and they're sort of preen about uh, the the influence they have over over events. Um, but if you listen closely, uh, you discover that they don't really know much more, if anything, than the rest of us. And to a certain extent, they know less because they're so uh, remote from the uh, the cares and concerns of the average person. So their opinions then on uh, Donald Trump, which apparently was the topic of conversation amongst uh, these elite groups at Davos in the last few days, particularly following Trump's blowout victory in, in Iowa. The extraordinary thing is that many of these American CEOs and billionaires think it's no big deal. Bank CEO who talked to CNBC off the record said that Trump's no big deal. You know, he's all bark and no bite. And he's going to win the presidency. And many of, it, many of his policies are right. I mean, we can also talk about your article with what Jamie Dimon said. But what's going on with the American business elite? Are they simply exposing the fact that they are completely transactional and amoral and that they don't care about anything but their profits? I think that's certainly true. I, I think another uh, factor in all this is that they know because of their their money and their position that whatever Trump does isn't going to affect them much. That, uh, you know, they're not dependent on government assistance uh, to to live on. They're not dependent on immigration policy to escape regimes at, at home and to come to America. They're already here. They already ha- they have these uh, the, uh, the, these moats, these bulwarks around them that protect them from basically political interference. And whatever happens, they and Donald Trump are in essentially the same class. So, uh, so yeah, I, I think it's understandable that they're really not concerned the way uh, the rest of us are about the, the damage that Trump can do to uh, the republic. Well, apparently some of these bank heads and U.S. business executives said that their European counterparts are, are alarmed, but they're not alarmed. And one of them is quoted at CNBC saying, I'm not sure Europeans understand how weak executive orders are. We have a justice system. Congress will probably be divided. It's right to be cautious, but it won't be the end of the world. That is hardly reassuring. Yeah, well, you know, as I said, they don't think it's the end of the world for them. I think it's instructive that the Europeans are more concerned because European economies and European politics are much more dependent on what happens in the United States than the the potentates and plurocrats gathering in Davos are. Um, uh, You know, I think uh, uh, the European... Union, uh, European countries that aren't in the Union, such as uh, Ukraine, really do understand that they're dependent on the United States to be stable and to to basically be attentive to European concerns. And if Trump becomes president again, he's made it crystal clear that he's not going to be. He's not going to care about Europe. He's not going to support Europe. He's not going to support Ukraine uh, against Russia. uh, uh, and I, I think they have legitimate concerns that 
you know, the chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase and Company may not. Well, the Europeans seem to understand that in what's happening in Ukraine is the march of a kind of new European fascism from Putin, who runs a mafia state, but nevertheless with many of the characteristics of the Nazis without some of the the nasty sort of uh, racism, although (laughs) there's a lot of racism in Russia, without belaboring any analogies. Back in uh, 33, when the Nazis took over, the German industrialists were saying, fine, you know, Hitler may be a little bit crazy, but uh, we like his policies. I think that's true. Um, But I think, you know, a lot of these uh, uh, leaders who come out of Europe lived through the consequences of that attitude, and they can watch what's going on in Ukraine and with Putin. Um, It's in their front yard. So, you know, they can't ignore it the way I think a a lot of American politicians are ignoring it. It, uh, It's remote from American concerns, but it is not at all remote from European concerns. They just know that if Putin gets his way with Ukraine, then some of them are going to be on the firing line uh, with the next round. So let's talk about your article at the Los Angeles Times and Michael Helsig, Davos, where the rich and powerful go to show off their ignorance. Let's focus on what Jamie Dimon had to say. In particular, his his remarks to CNBC that... Uh, Americans on the on the left, progressives, are just clutching their pearls over Trump, and they shouldn't be. It's not really a problem. He's he's okay. Well, it's not you know not so much the end of the world. But why don't you tell us exactly what he had to say and uh, how you responded? Um, sure. Well, there were two major themes in uh, in this interview with CNBC, and of course the CNBC anchors who were interviewing him, you know, they're. Uh, you know, their their general approach was basically to sit at his feet and listen and absorb and not question the inconsistencies in his uh, in, in in his arguments. But basically, the two themes were number one that it's wrong for Democrats to attack MAGA to attack the Trump uh, the the Trump bloc because uh, it looks bad and it sounds bad and it's uh, it's insulting. Now. In saying that, I think Jamie Dimon exposed himself as not a political analyst. In fact, it's the very opposite, because it looks it's crystal clear from the record of recent uh, elections and by-elections here in the U.S. that basically uh, putting the spotlight on Trump's behavior and his stated policies is, is a winning formula for independents and for Democrats. And when Diamond says, as he, as he said in this interview, that he thought it would be bad for Biden to attack MAGA, he, he, the evidence is that he's 100 percent wrong about that, that basically the winning formula for the Democrats is to make sure that voters know what's at stake if Trump wins again. So that's, there, there's that um, aspect. And the other theme that Diamond pushed on was that, gee, you know, uh, people voted for Trump because he's right about a lot of things he talked about. And he mentioned specifically uh, immigration policy and he mentioned, um, um, you know, economic policy and tax reform. 
and and all that. And uh, the 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 point that I raised is um, what was right about what Trump said. Uh, Diamond also said, "Gee, Trump was kind of right about NATO." Uh, but uh, you know, the CNBC interviewers uh, and you know never really pressed Diamond to say what was right about any of these issues. And in fact, Diamond contradicted himself. The fact is that what Trump has said about NATO is that it, it's dying, it should die, that the United States is not going to support it, and that if he gets into office again, he's going to withdraw from NATO. And yet, at the same time, Diamond also said, you know, the Americans really need to be much more aware of the stakes in not supporting Ukraine. So you can't have you, you can't do both things. You can't say we're not going to support the Europeans in, in NATO or around NATO, and yet we should support Ukraine. And these are just two contradictory approaches. And then when you talk about immigration, what's right about what Trump said has said about immigration? He said that immigrants are poisoning the blood of America. Is that right? Does Diamond really believe that to be true? Uh, and, the, and the fact of the matter is that if you want immigration policy to be sensible, the people who are interfering with that and who are obstacles are Trump and the, his fellow Republicans. So, so the basic point is, and, and by the way, then there was tax reform. Uh, Diamond was referring to the 2017 tax cuts that Trump and the Republicans put through. There's no evidence that they did anything to help the U.S. economy. There's evidence that they've been a drag on the economy. They've created a larger deficit than anyone uh, expected, and they don't pay for themselves. So basically, this is all this sort of bluster and blather from Diamond, and he got no pushback from his interviewers. I mean, I don't know what these guys at CNBC do for a living, but it's certainly not committing journalism. So specifically uh, on MAGA, what Diamond said was, I think this negative talk about MAGA is going to hurt Biden's electoral campaign. Well, that is, as you point out, manifestly absurd. And then, uh, and then the other statement he made is, a quote, just to step back, to be honest, he was, Trump, he was kind of right about NATO. He was kind of right about immigration. He grew the economy quite well. Trade, tax reform worked. He was right about some of China. I don't like how he said things about Mexico, but he wasn't wrong about some of these critical issues, and that's why they're voting for him. So this is a guy that Democrats work with. Uh, he's supposed to be a Democrat, isn't he? And uh, he's considered, uh, what, a sort of reasonable voice as opposed yeah, to a rabid is, voice? He, he is sort of considered a reasonable voice, and as I, I said, he's not stupid, uh, he's successful. He's accomplished uh, as a banking executive. You don't uh, you don't run the largest bank in the United States for 17 or 18 years without knowing what you're doing. But uh, he's he, he falls into the same trap that many accomplished people do uh, fall into, which is that they they know how accomplished they are in their lane, and they think they can talk about anything with authority. But they can't. Um, and when Diamond talks about politics, number one, uh, he's clearly wrong about what Trump policies 
are and what Trump has said. And I think he's also wrong in thinking that the people who vote for Trump are voting for him because they think he's right about tax reform or he's right about NATO. Uh, they're voting for him because he's at the center of ignore all this stuff um, and vote you, for him could you, anyway. Could you but, pick that up again? There was a dropout. He's at the center. He's at the center of a cult. Um, and, you know, people who follow a cult don't really think very hard about what the cult leader says. They're just following him willy-nilly. So in terms of where the center of power in this country is, it's supposed to be in Washington, but many have argued that it's really in New York on Wall Street. And what's your reading on that? Are these titans like the titans in the hot tubs, like Jamie Diamond? Are they really more powerful than Washington? I mean, we know that one of the problems with the Democratic Party is that starting with Bill Clinton, they pivoted away from the unions to raise money on Wall Street. Was after all, it was Bill Clinton who got rid of the Glass-Steagall Act, which then laid the groundwork for the 2008 crash. And Obama was extremely friendly to Wall Street. And many of these CEOs, particularly these tech CEOs, spent a lot of time in the Obama White House. So is this what's going on, that even though these guys like Jamie Dimon don't much seem to get politics wrong and have a completely out of touch with the average American, they are nevertheless in many ways more powerful than our political leaders because our political leaders depend upon them for money? Well, I, I think I would say, I would put it a little bit differently. I would say that uh, they're very influential and um, successful at getting what they want in fairly narrow terms. Uh, what they like are, uh, you know, is less regulation of their industries and uh, t uh, tax cuts. And J.P. Morgan and Chase has benefited uh, from its influence in both of those spheres. You know, its taxes have come way down. Uh, it doesn't get regulated nearly as much as it should. But in terms of general politics, um, I think what's driving politics in the U.S., in this cycle are things like the overreach of, of minority Republicans on things like abortion, uh, abortion rights, and so forth. You know, it's very clear that abortion rights are going to be a major issue in the upcoming election. Now, when you look at Biden's policies, he's been very successful in turning the Democratic Party back to to its, some of its roots. And, and by the way, when I talk about the roots of the Democratic Party, you know, in the 1930s, the Democrats were also had a very strong Wall Street arm. But basically, you know, the Biden administration, you know, has been very favorable to union collective bargaining rights. It supported them. Its National Labor Relations Board has been very, very good on that. So, you know, Biden has, has basically accomplished a lot in terms of creating assistance programs for lower income, disadvantaged Americans. So I think that, that Wall Street has not been successful in keeping Biden from turning the Democratic Party back to where it should be. And that's sort of a New Deal 
approach to basically helping Americans. Well, Michael Hussig, I thank you for joining us today. I appreciate it. Well, I'm happy to do it. And again, Thanks for I've having been... me. Well, thank you, Michael. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Helsing, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and columnist at the Los Angeles Times. He received the Pulitzer Prize for articles exposing corruption in the entertainment industry, and he currently writes a twice-weekly column covering business and economic issues relevant to life in California. His books include The New Deal and Modern History and Iron Empires, Robert Barron's Railroads and the Making of Modern America, and his latest article the Los Angeles Times is Davos, Where the Rich and Powerful Go to Show Off Their Ignorance. We're going to take a brief station break and back focusing on the Baluchistan region of Pakistan and its border with Iran, which has seen missile and drone strikes, first by Iran into Pakistan, then retaliation from Pakistan with strikes into Iran. <laughs> been hurt before. It's all right. You don't love me anymore. <laughs> Maybe someday. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Daniel Markey, who's a senior advisor on South Asia at the United States Institute for Peace and a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, Foreign Policy Institute. From 2003 to 2007, Dr. Markey was a member of the United States State Department's policy planning staff where his work focused on U.S. strategy in South Asia, especially Pakistan and India. And his books include China's Western Horizon, Beijing and the New Geopolitics of Eurasia, and No Exit from Pakistan, America's Tortured Relationship with Islamabad. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Daniel Markey. Happy to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And it seems as if both Iran and Pakistan are trying to kind of calm things down after missile strikes from Iran into Pakistan's Balochistan and a response from Pakistan on the 18th into an area just across the border inside Iran. So um, this is a tit for tat. You don't, do you expect any, any escalation? I don't uh, expect escalation. I, it's conceivable, but I think there are pretty good reasons why both sides feel like they've given a message or sent a signal. The signal was received. Another message was delivered. It was received. I think maybe the story can end there. Uh, but it's possible that, you know, they're, they're, we're dealing with militant organizations on both sides of the border. Uh, we're dealing with um, pretty uh, antsy leaders in both uh, Tehran and Islamabad uh, who are looking to make sure that um, they're not taken advantage of. And so it's possible that we could see more. And is there a Sunni-Shia dimension to this? There is. Um, the the uh, groups, the militant organization on the Pakistani side of the border that the Iranians uh, tried to hit, um, they're a, a Sunni organization, um, and uh, of course Iran being um, a Shia um, country, and uh, so there is a distinction there. Um, the groups that the uh, Pakistanis went after 
really are more identified with a kind of a separatist or nationalist bloch, um, more ethnic than than um, sectarian difference. Um, and so their concerns are that uh, the Baloch nationalists have never been happy really with um, the way that Pakistan was pulled together from the outset, have thought that they maybe should have an independent or autonomous uh, part of Pakistan um, in Balochistan and have been fighting for that uh, for decades now. So it's not all sectarian, but part of it is that. And isn't this a really impoverished area on both the Pakistan side and the Iranian side? Yeah, it's a huge, uh, relatively sparsely populated and terribly underdeveloped part of both countries. It's home to a lot of um, illicit uh, activities, uh, smuggling, uh, various types of trafficking, uh, arms dealing, and so on. It's not considered uh, safe uh, for outsiders to pass through. Um, it's not a, a place where industries have grown up, and it's certainly been, certainly on the Pakistani side, uh, an area of um, heavy state intervention, that is army intervention, political repression, um, military activities, a lot of uh, young Baloch um, sent to prison um, or otherwise dealt with uh, very firmly by the state for a um, variety of activities, including activities really that are in response to you know now decades of repression, political repression. So what do the, the Baluchistan separatists want from the Pakistan government? Well, as I say, they, they believe that um, they've been poorly treated by the central government of Pakistan. I, I think generally that's true. Um, they've gotten a raw end in ter- of the stick in terms of exploitation of the nat- uh, natural resources like gas or fishing um, facilities, port facilities uh, that the province does have. Um, they feel like they haven't seen the kind of development, economic development uh, or infrastructure build out that other parts of Pakistan have had, that they're not as well represented in Pakistani politics and never will be, um, and that their um, kind of their their identity, their ethnic identity, a Baloch uh, ethnic identity is looked down upon by uh, Punjabis or others in Pakistan. So they've got a lot of different grievances, and at least some of them have historically thought that they should uh, form their own country. And from the beginning, some of their, their leaders believed that they uh, really shouldn't have joined Pakistan, um, you know, when it became independent uh, as a part of the, uh, uh, the foundation of independent India and Pakistan after the British Empire. And what's happening on the Iranian side of the border? What kind of targets were struck and what kind of uh, ideology or motivation does these terrorist groups have that Pakistan struck against? Yeah, the, so the group that Pakistan uh, apparently has struck against is a group uh, that that supports the BLA or the BLF that, that support um, these uh, separatist groups uh, within Pakistan. Um, they... Uh, among all the grievances that I mentioned, another one that's really come to the fore of late is that they're unhappy with a more extensive Chinese presence in Balochistan, including at this port, uh, Gwadar port, which is being built out with Chinese support. Um, and they believe that they're basically being pushed off uh, lands, historically held lands of their own. Um, they tend to see uh, other Pakistanis um, as you know, settlers, as colonists. 
um, as outsiders, uh, and they want to push them back. And so, of course, the Pakistani state um, hasn't taken kindly to this and has wanted to go after them and sees uh, their presence inside Iran as an example of how Iran is using these kinds of proxy groups to put pressure on Pakistan and probably doing it in response to Pakistan being perceived by Iran as doing more or less the same thing. So the Guaida port, though, isn't that a big part of uh, Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative? Well, it's a part. Uh, I don't know that goes so far as to say a big part, at least not yet. Um, it's an interesting project because if it really comes into being, I mean, it is a port now, but it's not highly utilized. It doesn't have much connectivity to the rest of Pakistan in terms of roads or rails. It really isn't seeing much in the way of, of uh, traffic. But if it were to become more significant, you know, to offer a kind of a, an option for overland access from Western China, from Xinjiang province, across a difficult um, highway, the Karakoram Highway, down through Pakistan and all the way to the Arabian Sea. And, you know, if you look at a global map, you'll see that that permits China to, in some ways, circumvent some of the bottlenecks of international trade and shipping routes that are potential problems for China, say, um, in the um, uh, in the Indian Ocean. So that's kind of useful. The other point that's gotten a lot of attention is the possibility that Gwadar could be a dual-use port, um, one in which the Chinese could um, send uh, their, their military ships, their, their navy, uh, to dock uh, for refueling or um, various uh, port activities, um, and which would extend the, in a sense, the, the reach of the Chinese military. So it's not just a commercial issue, but also potentially a, a military one. And so, you know, that makes uh, neighbors, especially India, quite nervous about what water uh, could mean for Pakistan and for China. So in other words, it's outflanking India, right? In a sense. That's what it looks like. I mean, you know, we should be careful here because, of course, Pakistan's been a friend of China's for decades. Pakistan has other ports like Karachi. It's not as if China can't use those, and it does. Um, and so it's not as earth-shattering or entirely new as some might make it out to be, but it's definitely an indication that, you know, it is a Chinese, uh, a port that's being built with Chinese help. Uh, is a major project, um, and it's, so it's an indication of expanding Chinese access of ambition and of the potential of what you know what China's presence could be, and as you say, as a, a potential of outflanking that you know India, for its part, really sees all across the region. It sees it in Pakistan, definitely, also uh, in places like Bangladesh, potentially in Sri Lanka, in the Maldives, um, and elsewhere as well. So, um, so India is quite nervous about what all of this means. But the, the connections then from China's western provinces to the port of Gwadar and, and Baluchistan, Pakistan, that bypasses Afghanistan, which is a mess, right? Yeah, that doesn't require Afghanistan to be involved. It doesn't require Afghanistan to be stable. It doesn't, you know, uh, need any of that. And so, so that's useful for uh, for China. I mean, at the same time, as we're seeing right now, Balochistan isn't exactly an easy part of the world to operate. And um, there have been attacks, a series of attacks against Chinese workers, against Chinese diplomats inside of Pakistan. Um, many of those have been launched by uh, these Baloch uh, separatist groups. So they're, they're a bit of a, a headache, uh, not just for Pakistan, but also for China. 
And the more that China is involved in Pakistan, the more they're likely to be a headache, uh, assuming that their political differences aren't resolved or, or that you know, the problem is not otherwise addressed. So this seems like a, a, a real problem for Pakistan. And as, as we started out, they don't want clearly to escalate, neither does Iran. And on the Iranian side, what's their position vis-a-vis -vis China? China's the biggest customer for their oil. Yeah, so uh, Iran has definitely seen China as um, not just useful, but vital, especially as Iran has been less and less able to sell their oil to anyone else. Um, so the Chinese are massively important to them. Um, you know, interestingly, just in terms of this particular Iranian strike, you know, China has come out uh, calling for restraint uh, by both sides. China has decent relations with Iran and good relations with Pakistan, and so doesn't want to see the two of them quarreling. So it really does raise this question of what Iran thought it was doing by launching the initial strike um, and doing so as a part of a series of, of attacks uh, against what it perceives to be proxy groups you know, operating in other places like Iraq and, and Syria. Um, and and it seems to believe that these all of these groups have had some kind of a Israeli it claims some kind of Israeli or U.S. backing to them, um, and it's conceivable that um, that there's at least a partial truth to that. I don't know for for a fact, but um, historically, that is within the past 20 years, some of these groups, these Baloch groups that have um, attacked inside of Iran, did. There were claims, there have been claims that they did have some kind of a U.S. Um, intelligence support or that at the very least that the Pakistanis were supporting them against Iran with the blessing of the United States or with a under a request from the United States. So it's conceivable that that's what Iran thought it was doing um, by hitting these particular groups inside of Pakistan. But given you know, the world has changed over the past 20 years, and now Iran, Pakistan, and China are, you know, relatively are getting along well. Um, so Iran may have picked a fight with Pakistan that it, it too will see some downsides to, to seeing it escalate. Well, Iran's obviously involved in proxy battles with Hezbollah in Lebanon, with the Quds and the IRGC in, in Syria and Iraq, and with the Houthi in Yemen. So the, the, the axis of resistance is quite busy. Oh, yeah, very, very busy. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean they want to pick a fight with Pakistan. Um, you know, not that not that Pakistan is going to be the huge problem for Iran. It's just why bother? Why go there? Um, right. There are a lot of other places that you could you could cause trouble. And this one seems only very, very indirectly to be hitting either U.S. and even more. I mean, it's impossible to see any connection to Israeli uh, links here, uh, which, of course, Iran says that it's doing all of this uh, to, you know, as a part sure. of a, a global struggle. Well, Dr. Daniel Markey, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Absolutely. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Daniel Markey, who's a senior advisor on South Asia at the United States Institute of Peace and a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies Foreign Policy Institute. From 2003 to 2007, Dr. Markey was a member of the United States State Department's policy planning staff, where his work focused on U.S. strategy in South Asia, especially Pakistan and India. And his books include China's Western Horizon, Beijing and the New Geopolitics of Eurasia, and No Exit from Pakistan. 
America's tortured relationship with Islamabad. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back to broadening the discussion to assess whether the exchange of missiles between Iran and Pakistan will contribute to the escalation of conflicts in the Middle East involving Iran's axis of resistance. Anger, he smiles, towering in shiny metallic purple armor. Queen jealousy envy waits behind him. Her fiery green gown sneers at the grassy ground. All the life-giving waters taken for granted They quietly understand Once happy turquoise armies lay opposite ready But wonder why the fight is on Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Adam Weinstein, who is a research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, a former Marine officer deployed to Afghanistan. He previously worked as a senior law and policy analyst at the National Iranian American Council. Welcome to Background Briefing, Adam Weinstein. Uh, Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Adam. And you uh, were just in uh, Pakistan and there's been a tit-for-tat uh, strike, military strike on January the 16th. Uh, Iran hit an area of Pakistan in Balochistan, just across the border. And then on the 18th of January, Pakistan responded with strikes inside Iran, just across the border. But there's one of the things that seemed provocative about it is that the, Pakistan's former foreign minister, the diary, told the BBC he was surprised that at the attack because Iran's foreign minister met with Pakistan's acting prime minister on the day they violated the sovereignty of our country. So why do you think Iran is being so provocative? Uh, well, I think Iran's being provocative because it, it, it's in a provocative mood right now. It's been uh, There was that ISK attack in Kerman, and uh, Iran has responded... Uh, with strikes in Syria and Iraq and now Pakistan, although in Pakistan the strikes were directed at a group called Jaish al-Adam. Um, and I think they, they figure they can get away with it. And, and so far as civilian officials meeting with each other, I don't think it's civilian officials who are calling the shots. I think it's Iran's uh, IRGC that's probably calling the shots in terms of conducting strikes inside Pakistan. So what's going on here is that there are anti-Iranian terrorist groups in Balochistan in the Pakistan side, and there are anti-Pakistan groups on the Iranian side just across the border? Uh, yes, that's true. Uh, they're both anti-state, uh, uh, and, and they both target uh, both Pakistan and Iran, and, and those, those groups find refuge uh, on both sides of the border. And the, the recent attacks inside Iran itself on the fourth anniversary of the killing of the Quds Force commander in Kerman, that was that attack was both ISIS and it was also connected to Balochistan inside of Pakistan. Uh, the ISKP attack on and Kerman, I, I'm not sure there's any evidence that it was connected to Balochistan. Uh, but the point is that Iran is responding to multiple uh, militant groups that uh, they feel threaten its sovereignty. Well. The Pakistani military spokesman said that the two neighbors, Iran and Pakistan, are brotherly countries. And he went on to say that dialogue and cooperation is deemed prudent in resolving bilateral issues between them. 
a calculated and timely response was necessary to negate an Iranian misperception that an unprovoked surprise military attack on Pakistan will not yield a strong but calibrated and swift response. So that sounds sort of pretty adult to me. What do you think, Adam? Are they both sides have done their tit for tat, but they're both signaling that they don't want it to go any further? I think that's an accurate assessment. I mean, the different statements I've seen show that they want to have a de-escalation. The Pakistani state had to respond, but I think the last thing they want is a conflict uh, with Iran along its its, its border, especially when uh, the border with Afghanistan is is so active right now. And, of course, uh, their border with India along the line of control is quiet right now, but that can always change. So the last thing the Pakistani state wants is insecurity on three of its borders. Uh, so I think uh, they had to respond, but now they're trying to de-escalate, and it's in Iran's interest to de-escalate as well. So you, were Adam, were recently in uh, Pakistan. Uh, give us a, a, a brief sketch of Pakistan's very stressful state. It has political instability. As you mentioned, it's got a hostile border on the Indian side and on the, on the Afghan side. They recently started to evict huge numbers of Afghans inside of, uh, have been inside of Pakistan for decades. And in many ways, I don't know what your analysis is, but my understanding is that some in Pakistan are having buyer's remorse now about having supported the Taliban for decades, undermining the U.S. effort in Afghanistan. And you were there as a Marine in, in um, Afghanistan. So let's start with that. Is there some buyer's remorse on the part of the Pakistanis and the ISI for their support of the Taliban? I think they do have buyer's remorse because I I think they had hoped that the relationship with the Haqqani network would uh, give them some leverage inside the Afghan Taliban. But instead, what we're seeing is that the Afghan Taliban have proven quite stubborn. They're not curtailing the attacks by the TTP, which are sometimes called or referred to as the uh, Pakistani Taliban. And uh, so, so I think they, there is some buyer's remorse. So is there a Sunni Muslim, uh, Shiite Muslim dimension to this, given that the uh, Iran is insisting that its strikes inside Pakistan were aimed at Jaisal al-Adil, the Army of Justice, which is an ethnic Baluchi Sunni Muslim militant group? Um, and, of course, uh, uh, Iran is a, is a Shia Muslim state. Is that, is that, is that dimension at play? Uh, yes and no. I mean, Jaish al-Adil is not like a mainstream outfit, and I, I don't think they, they're not mainstream in Pakistan. Uh, but the issue is that whenever there's tension between Iran and Pakistan, that can fuel sectarian tensions inside Pakistan. And there's already sectarian tensions inside Pakistan between uh, Shia communities and, and, and Sunni uh, communities, especially uh, among extremist quarters. So uh, it can play out that way. But it's even worse inside Afghanistan, isn't it? The tensions, I mean, between uh, the, the Sunni and Shia, even there's a Shia minority there um, near the Iranian side of Afghanistan. Uh, you've got uh, uh, the Islamic State operating there, you know, quite v- uh, vicious in terms of their sectarianism. So um, what's the situation inside of Afghanistan in terms of, uh, of religious tensions? Well, there's the Hazara minority, uh, 
who are primarily in Daikundi province and also in Kabul as well and other other parts of the country too. Uh, and they tend to be targeted by the Islamic State um, uh, for, 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 for being Shia, but there's also an ethnic component to it as well sometimes. Um, and the Taliban have not been able to effectively protect the Hazara, but then again, neither was the Afghan government that preceded them. So uh, they've always been a beleaguered group. And there's also Hazara in Kuwait Pakistan who are targeted by extremist groups. They exist on both sides of the border. Right. So in terms of bias remorse, though, what's going on with the Pakistan evicting the uh, uh, longtime residents of the border area with Afghanistan? Uh, so they're all Pashtuns. They've, traditionally, the Pashtuns tribes have, have cr- crossed the borders. Um, and the Pashtuns, of course, are, the, uh, are where the Taliban come from, in effect. So what's happening there? Is that is that surely increasing tensions between the two countries, isn't it? Dumping a whole bunch of refugees. And what would the fate of these refugees be if many of them are anti-Taliban, which I'm assuming some of them are? Well, some of them are anti-Taliban. Most of them are just witnesses in Pakistan. So, of course, when they return to Afghanistan, they're going to have nothing and they're, they're probably going to be living in poverty. Uh, but the reason the Pakistani state is doing this is quite simple. They think it will put pressure on the Taliban, the Afghan Taliban, to curtail uh, the Pakistani Taliban who have been uh, killing uh, uh, Pakistani security forces. So they think if they deport all of these Afghans uh, and the remittances stop flowing from Pakistan to Afghanistan, that it will put some pressure on the Taliban. Uh, And they also think it will embarrass the Taliban. And they're hoping that that leverage that they have over the Afghan Taliban and that it will produce some sort of changed behavior right so do you see any irony adam weinstein in this tit-for-tat missiles and drone strike between iran striking pakistan on the 16th and uh, pakistan retaliating on the 18th of january given that pakistan is a nuclear power and iran is a what a wannabe nuclear power so what does this say about the nuclear issue in that neighborhood? Well, I mean, I think it shows that, look, you can, the, the fact that Pakistan's a nuclear power isn't really a deterrent for Iran when it comes to this low-level type of conflict. But as usual, I- Iran is um, acting in ways that I think are, it, it's getting a, a bit too big to shoes, so to speak, and it's provoking its neighbors. Uh, but it doesn't have much to lose by doing so. Uh, whereas the Pakistani state, you know, it, it does have things to lose. I think, though, that these strikes were a boon for the Pakistani military because they created a rally around the flag kind of effect and uh, increased their popularity at, a little bit at a moment when many Pakistanis are critical of, of the military because of uh, the jailing of uh, the popular former prime minister Imran Khan. So in, in some ways, this has been a gift for the Pakistani military because it's distracted the Pakistani public. Uh, but, you know, as usual, uh, I think Iran is trying to assert itself, but is, is perhaps biting off too big a piece of the apple. Um, and so, of course, Pakistan responds, but neither wants escalation. The irony is that these tit-for-tat exchanges aren't good for either Iran or Pakistan in the long run, because both countries face serious economic problems. And these kinds of military escalations are not good for trade. They're not good for investment. Um, 
so it's actually kind of tragic uh, if you look at it from that point of view. Well, it's often been said that Pakistan is not a country with an army, but an army with a country. So does that still hold? There's some truth to that because the army has a lot of power in Pakistan, but the civilian politics still matter. Right. And they're trying to reassert themselves, the civilian side. Uh, Imran Khan, of course, was a, was a favorite backed by the military, and then uh, they turned against him. Yeah, that's true. Right. So given that the governments of China, Turkey, and the Taliban in Afghanistan have all urged restraint and dialogue, what's going on with Iran then? Because they're striking out in all directions uh, with Hezbollah in Lebanon, with the Quds and IRGC in Syria and Iraq, and with the Houthi in Yemen. So given that China and Turkey and, and the Taliban government are, are calling for restraint. How does that fall on Iranian ears? Well, I don't think the Iranians are that interested in restraint right now. Uh, but they're taking calculated risks. They don't want a wider war. I don't think they want a direct confrontation with Israel. Uh, but they're taking uh, calculated risks and they're pushing the envelope. Uh, Israel's pushing the envelope as well. Uh, and uh, I, I think they're, they're engaged in a regional game of chicken. And uh, they're going to, it's a dangerous game because uh, at some point either actor might go too far. But is this a, a manifestation of strength on the part of the Iranian regime and the Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is essentially the Praetorian Guard? Or is this a, a manifestation of weakness? I, I don't know if I call it a manifestation of weakness or strength. It's a manifestation of audaciousness. Um, you know, and uh, I, I think these kinds of antics have really damaged uh, Iran if you look at their economy and their isolation. Uh, but it does demonstrate that, uh, at least to some extent, the IRGC is able to act with impunity uh, with some of its neighbors, such as what it does in Iraq and, and Syria. But, uh, you know, of course, that wasn't the case for Pakistan, which is why Pakistan struck back. Well, how does this then affect the U.S. situation vis-a-vis -vis the Houthis, where President Biden made an extraordinary remark today when asked in, at, at a speech in, uh, on domestic policy in North Carolina, asked by the press, you know, what's happening with the Houthis? And he says, uh, when you say wo whether the policy is working, he, Biden says, when you say working, are they stopping the Houthis? No. Are they going to continue? Yes. So that's a pretty odd remark, isn't it, to say, you know, we're not stopping them and they're going to continue. So why are we doing it? Well, why? I, think, I think President Biden told on himself a bit. I mean, he's, he's doing it because he needs to, I, I think the Biden administration thinks they need to do something. But um, the Houthis have withstanded bombardment from the Saudis for years. Uh, so I, I don't think that conducting strikes on them is going to really alter their behavior. You know, I think perhaps pushing for a ceasefire in Gaza might temporarily alter their behavior only because it might put Iran in a situation where Iran wants to uh, uh, sort of uh, rein them in a little bit. Uh, uh, but, but also the Houthis are their own actor. They, they, of course, Iran has influence over them, but the Houthis have their own reasons to assert themselves. I think a ceasefire would help. Uh, but for right now, I think the Biden administration thinks, well, we have to do something 
it's clear that the something they're doing is not effective. And, and this is why I think we need to reassess the entire U.S. force posture in the region. Why subject U.S. troops to uh, tit-for-tat uh, attacks in Iraq and Syria? Uh, it, that's a, a, another question that should be asked. Uh, because obviously we're not really uh, achieving any kind of deterrence. Uh, instead, we're, we're sort of placing U.S. troops unnecessarily in harm's way. And according to the Financial Times, the U.S. has more than 57,000 military personnel in the Middle East. Well, that's true. I mean, many of those personnel are in, in, in places like uh, Qatar, for example, where they're not really targets. Uh, but the places where they are targets, such as in Iraq and, and Syria, I think there should be a reassessment of why they're there. Right. So is there, though, a broader... I mentioned the Sunni-Shia split... Is there a, a, a broader issue here in following the, the war in Gaza, which was, after all, provoked by brutal attack by Hamas, which is a Shia group, which is a Sunni group supported by Shia Iran, and Shia Iran is, seems to be getting a lot of credit. I mean, the reason that the Houthis are, are doing what they're doing is, is, in, is in solidarity with the Palestinians. So what you seem to have in the Middle East is that Shia, Iran, and its proxies in uh, Hezbollah and the Houthis, etc., are the ones that are getting credit for supporting Hamas, which is increasingly popular in the Arab world and in particularly in the West Bank. So is this really what Iran's policy has always been about, that they're the ones that are going to liberate Palestine, not the Sunni kings? Well, I mean, that's what the Iranians will say. They'll point to what they view as the hypocrisy of the Gulf monarchies that are willing to make deals with the U.S. and even with Israel, and that Iran is, is the true axis of resistance. And I think they get a lot of um, prestige in some parts of the Muslim world as a result of that. So, yeah, there's that component. That's sort of their... Um, their that's what they hang their hat on. But it seems to be working for them at the moment, isn't it? Well, it depends what working means. It's working for them in that I think they're getting uh, some more prestige in the Muslim world. And uh, it, 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 you, I guess they have some popularity, uh, but it's not working for them in the sense that they're one of the most isolated economies in the world and their own people uh, you know, are engaged in various forms of protests that ebb and flow. So it depends what you consider working. Right. Well, it's a terrible government. There's no question about that. The young women of Iran rose up against them and they were brutally put down. So one wouldn't shed any tears if they went away. And hopefully they, at some point, either will go away. Obviously, with the the death of the supreme leader, there may be some leadership succession problems. But on the other side, the Abraham Accords, they look pretty shaky. I mean... Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham was just in the tent in the desert with Mohammed bin Salman trying to revive the Abraham Accords, as are the Biden administration. Why are they still betting on that, along with Brett McGurk? Is there some possibility in the middle of the Gaza war? It would seem to me pretty hard to put that one back on the rails. Well, I mean, I'll never say never. There might be some possibility. I think the reason they're betting on it is that they've already invested a lot in it and it's, it's, there's a sunk cost and 
they want to believe that it can be salvaged. Whether it can be salvaged is another question. Um, I, you know, I again, if you want to salvage those accords, I would probably spend more time trying to get to a ceasefire first. Uh, but uh, I, I think the reason they're prioritizing it is because they've invested so much into it. But how do you get a ceasefire with Netanyahu, whose political fortunes are such, or misfortunes are such, that he's got about 15% support inside of Israel itself, and it would seem to me that he's a pretty cynical person, uh, that he's going to keep that war going, because that as long as the war goes on, he's in power and he's been giving, basically ignoring pleas from Biden and Blinken and Sullivan. That's true, and that's what makes it so difficult. And I agree. Look, the the United States might not have the leverage to 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 uh, force a ceasefire, but it hasn't even really made much of an attempt. So I think it would be worth attempting to use it to use the leverage that the U.S. does have. Uh, that doesn't mean it will work, because as you pointed out, Netanyahu does have very strong political motivations uh, to keep this conflict going. Well, just in closing, Adam Weissing, Senator Bernie Sanders put forth a bill uh, to try and, in the Senate, uh, to try and ha- have Israel s- stop its what appears to be a campaign of starvation in the Gaza, where children are, uh, are starving. And he only got 10 Senate votes. So it's not just the White House that's all in with Israel. It's also the House and Senate, is it not? Well, that, that's true. And in an election year, the, that, that might be what's driving the Biden administration's calculations. Right. Well, Adam Washington, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Adam Weinstein, who's a research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, a former Marine officer deployed to Afghanistan. He previously worked as a senior law and policy analyst at the National Iranian American Council. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.